Hello and welcome to the Better Bite podcast. My name is Katie, I'm a registered dietitian, blogger, foodie, and at the heart of it, just a regular girl in her 20s trying to figure things out. On this podcast, we'll be talking all things food, nutrition, body image, and beyond. I hope you join me while we explore the real evidence behind popular diet trends, challenge diet culture, and rediscover why eating well is about enhancement, not punishment. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Better Bite podcast. It is currently Easter Monday. We've just had an amazing Easter weekend weather-wise but I'm sitting, it's about 7am in the morning. You know if you follow my Instagram and I'm an early riser but I'm looking out my window and it's snowing. So that is Northern Irish weather for you if ever you've seen it. If my voice sounds a little bit croaky, that's also because you're the first people that I've spoken to today, so feel (laughs) honoured. But I hope you're all well. I'm really excited to introduce today's episode. One of the most common questions that I get, I think because I have obviously um, a predominantly female following, um, is about PCOS. This is a condition that affects at least one in 10 females. And in my experience, both from working and from DMs that I get on Instagram, it's something that really does bring a lot of stress and worry into the lives of people who are suffering from it. I recently asked on my Instagram what topics you would like to hear discussed on my podcast and it was absolutely no surprise to me that PCOS came up really frequently. It was definitely the number one question that came up. So I thought what a better time to get somebody on who works with this sort of stuff on an everyday basis. So today we have a wonderful guest on the podcast. I have followed her for quite a while on Instagram. I think one, probably one of the first people I started following when I started up my account. She posts the most delicious looking meals ever. Loads of good information, especially if you are a female. Um, loads of great information about how nutrition can affect women's health specifically. And she is just such a lovely, lovely girl. Um, and yeah, I was delighted to have her on. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. And I really hope that this helps anyone who's been asking me about PCOS. I hope this gives you some tips, some peace of mind and some actionable steps to implement into your life to help you as much as possible. So welcome to the episode, Alex. Thank you so much for coming on and I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. Thank you, Katie. I'm so excited to be here, so thank you. (laughs) So to kick things off, I think it would be nice to get a little bit of an idea of who you are. Like most dietitians, I would imagine you started off by working exclusively within the NHS. So what did that entail for you? What was that like? And What sort of experience did you pick up in those first few years? Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, thank you for having me, Katie. I'm really excited to be here and it's exciting to have a chat, all things PCOS as well. Um, But I've always been super interested in nutrition and food in relation to our health 
Um, so I think if I go kind of way back, it probably stemmed from um, when I was a really young child, I was really into sport. So I had all of this kind of information flying around about how does food and hydration impact things like sporting performance and recovery. So even from a really young age, I was thinking, well, how, you know, I know food and drink has a big impact on how our body works. So I was kind of making that connection. Um, then kind of moving on, getting a bit older, went to obviously was in secondary school um, and fell in love with food technology, which I think is where my kind of love for recipe creations and things like that came from. Um, but quite unusually, I was always doing projects linking to health conditions. So I'd do a packed lunchbox for someone on a low potassium diet, for example, or something like that, um, which quite unusual at that age. But I was already really interested mm. in how food impacts disease states, whether that's treating, curing, preventing them. Um, got a whole host of work experience. My parents were fab with setting me up with <laughs> loads of different things. Um, in the nutrition sector so I went and did work experience with a nutritionist at Tesco um, in uh, health promotion environmental health food science um, and then obviously did some pl uh, placements with some community dietitians local to me and just fell in love with dietetics instantly knew that was you know that was what I wanted to do um, went off to uni, um, went to like millions of open days, went to see all of them. And the one that I kind of really liked, felt like I fitted in well there was Coventry Uni. So I was there for the four years, um, had a whole host of different work experience placements. So some in acute, some in community, like a really nice mix. Um, and from that, as we were saying before the podcast started, um, I was more than happy to go into acute work or community um, but it just happened that a job came up straight out of fresh out of uni um, with the team that I'd done my work experience with when I was in sixth form. So I thought, oh, well, I'm familiar with them and it's near to home. And um, so I applied for that, got it. And now I'm working with that same team um, and have been for the last roughly kind of five and a half years. Um, and I absolutely love it. It's a really varied role. Um, so I do things like GP clinics and um, diabetes clinics. Um, home visits, uh, group education, we've got community wards, so I do get a bit of inpatient experience. Um, so yeah, it's really varied. And my kind of two main specialisms at the moment are diabetes um, and home enteral feeding in that NHS role. Um, but I'm currently training a bit in gastro as well. So that might be kind of the next thing that creeps in. Um, but I, I absolutely love it. And I think it's just so nice to have a varied position where it's not the same kind of day in, day out. Yeah, definitely. And that's so interesting to hear you talk about the lunchboxes that you did, because here in Northern Ireland, we we would call it home economics rather than food tech, but it's very much based in kind of like public health and healthy eating rather than nutrition and various diseases, uh, which I think would have been so fascinating to have been able to be exposed to much earlier in life than I was. For me, that only really came into things probably in my final year of my um, undergrad, um, and it's really great that you were able to get such great work experience as well because I know in school I really struggled to secure work experience in nutrition or dietetics and I think that kind of um, well definitely made things harder starting off to like in deciding what I wanted to do and I knew I was interested in nutrition but exactly what I could do with that interest 
Um, it took some years of figuring things out for sure. I think here anyway, if you delve enough, you can get the experiences, but you do have to, you know, really continuously email around and it can be quite laborious. But yeah, I think having that experience there was brilliant because it just solidified exactly what I do want to, you know, what I wanted to do. So it's really important. Yeah. And probably exposed you quite early on to just how varied of a role dietitians can have because as I said, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunities here to shadow dietitians. Um, but I did get to shadow one dietitian. I think it was for only one day when I was in sixth form, but probably shouldn't um, advertise this too much. But unfortunately, it actually completely put me off, um, which is one of the reasons I ended up doing an undergrad in nutrition rather than dietetics. Whereas if there had been more opportunities to see those other sides of the job, I might have been able to see, you know, maybe that was just a bad day or just an area of dietetics that just wasn't for me. So moving on from that, you have now started your own private clinic under Alex Talks Diet. So I'm interested to know what attracted you to make that move and why did you choose, I suppose, women's health, so fertility and the other areas that you specialize in? um, So, I mean, Alex Talks Diet started just as an Instagram account. So I had millions of photos of food and recipes on my phone and I just thought I might as well put these somewhere. So that's kind of how it initially started, (laughs) just somewhere to offload all the photos that my family wanted me to stop sending them. Um, So it started purely as that, an Instagram account about, I think it must have been two years ago now. Um, And from that, I started realising that I missed doing any form of writing. So younger younger age I loved writing and if I hadn't been a dietitian I probably would have gone and done English lit or something like that at uni so I really wanted to get back into doing some writing but linking it with my dietetic knowledge so I had the Instagram account I then started doing some um, articles for professional magazines so people like CN um, and I started a page for a local newspaper so an article on a various health or nutrition related topic a recipe and then a kind of an advert for a local food company so it's a nice little mix um, and from the writing I kind of realized that when I had free reign to talk about whatever I wanted I always seemed to come back to women's health and fertility so that was obviously a, a keen interest that I hadn't realized that I had through my NHS experience um, and it wasn't really something that I could get a lot more experience through my NHS role I think it's there's a bit of a gap there there's not necessarily a lot of dietetic support for Mm. things like preconception nutritional advice it's not not something that's overly advertised for for people to go and get help with um so from that I thought well I've banked up all of this knowledge now about fertility and women's health so I want to try and use it so I just emailed all of the local fertility centers some of which never heard from some of which um you know didn't need the support but then there were there was one in particular that was really keen for dietetic support so I've joined with them so I'm now their private dietitian and I've recently joined with another center as well um so I'm now doing private consultations for individuals or couples that are hoping to conceive um, and then sometimes taking on other private clients as well for various reasons um but that's kind of how it came about it wasn't necessarily I didn't start Alex Talks Diet as an Instagram account thinking it would lead to fertility work, but it was just kind of how it's gone and I'm really enjoying it. It's only been last kind of six months that I've been doing private Mm. work, but I am really enjoying it just as an addition to my NHS stuff. 
yeah, okay, I didn't actually realise it had only been six months. I feel like you've really um, found your flu and it looks like it's going really well for you. But yeah, I think there's a big gap in a lot of different areas in the NHS, unfortunately, especially within dietetics specifically. And I think a lot of people, including consultants, GPs, do have a misunderstanding that dietitians are just there to give advice for weight loss, diabetes, um, and maybe some other specific disease states. But those areas, um, other areas that actually have a really big impact on people's lives um, and that we can play a really big role into as dietitians don't really get the attention that they deserve. Um, So I suppose for anyone who's listening as well, it's recognising that if there isn't services in the NHS that you can go to to help, there are so many dietitians working privately. And so, yeah, you might need to pay for them. Um, and maybe that isn't something that you can afford. But if you can, that might be something that is totally worthwhile to you. So as you said, you work in a ton of different areas regarding women's health. But in particular, for this episode, you work with clients suffering with PCOS. So I get asked, honestly, so many questions about PCOS. It's probably the number one condition that I'll get asked questions about. So I knew I needed to get a podcast episode up about it. And I thought it would be a great opportunity for my own learning as well um, to get someone who's seeing these patients on a more regular basis. Because as we said, it doesn't come up all that often under the NHS. So it's not something that I work with all the time. So I suppose for anyone who is listening who has no idea what PCOS even is, maybe you could explain a little bit about it, um, what it is, is it caused by anything, what might someone look out for to indicate that they might have PCOS? Yeah, of course. And you're completely right, Katie. I think it is something that is lacking because fertility, but also things like PCOS, nutrition has a huge role in the treatment process of that. So it really should be first line. And actually, the guidance says that nutritional advice and health advice Mm -hmm. should be the first line approach. But I'm not sure that that is happening in all cases at all. Um, But so it should be something we're working more towards. Um, But PCOS, so I I do see quite a lot of clients through the fertility work with PCOS and occasionally in general GP practice from my NHS work, but yeah, not not enough. Um, But PCOS is polycystic ovary syndrome um, and it's one of the most common um, endocrine uh, disorders and it affects about one in 10 women of a reproductive age. So I think I know we're going to talk about myths and um, myths and misconceptions and things, but that's probably one of the most common ones that it's, uh, you know, people think it's a rare condition, but actually it is reasonably common for women. Um, the cause of PCOS is unknown really um it's likely that there is a genetic and an environmental factor to it so that's kind of you know where we're at with what the cause might be but what we do know is that it's an imbalance of sex hormones and that in turn then affects how the ovaries work so that's what we really do know about pcos um to diagnose it we use a criteria so it's it's basically a list of clinical features and if a woman is displaying two or more of those features then that would diagnose her with with PCOS so that's how the diagnosis is done um, and those features are the first one is irregular periods um, and that is indicating that the ovaries aren't releasing eggs properly or there's that the woman's not ovulating 
Um, the second feature is excess androgen, which are male sex hormones, so things like testosterone. So if a woman has higher testosterone levels, that again would be a, a clinical feature of PCOS. Um, and the third, third feature is polycystic ovaries. So that may be that the ovaries are enlarged and that there's lots of little kind of fluid filled sacs or follicles around the eggs, surrounding the eggs. Um, so they're the kind of three main things. And if you have two or more of those, then that would lead to a diagnosis of, of PCOS. Um, but when it comes to symptoms or how that displays itself, it's incredibly varied from individual to individual. Um, and it, there are a list of kind of common symptoms, but by no means does this mean that a woman with PCOS will have all of these symptoms um, and, and no one woman with PCOS, PCOS will look the same. Um, but common symptoms may be things like irregular or absent periods. Um, hair growth, especially on the face or the shoulders, the chest. Um, acne or oily skin. Um, difficulties in maintaining a healthy body weight, which is something that's really important then with working with a dietitian. Uh, thinning of scalp hair and also potentially some fertility issues as well. So they're kind of common symptoms that women may experience with PCOS but as I say it wouldn't be all of them and it is really individual for each person. Yeah so this is a bit of an impromptu question so I'm sorry for putting you on the spot but again just kind of for my own learning what might be um, I guess the differential criteria between something like PCOS and maybe like endometriosis is it like just a ruling out of one or the other or how would that work yeah exactly so if anybody's having any kind of gynecological problems it should really be that they get referred to a gynecology and then that they do explore all the different conditions because the last thing you want to do as well is it you know diagnose one condition and assume that all of the issues that somebody may be having is purely down to that one condition so it's really important that mm -hmm. everything is investigated so that you know exactly what's going on for that individual um, and not just assuming that everything is down to one condition. It's really important to carry on doing the different tests um, and, and figuring out exactly what's going on for that individual. And obviously, as you've said, there's a huge range of different symptoms that someone might have in relation to PCOS. But what impact can it have on the individual, I suppose, even on a wider scale? How would it affect their day to day life or even like their general quality of life? Uh, it's a really important question and I think that in regards to any medical condition is something that we really should always have in our minds um, because if anyone is diagnosed with any medical condition, especially a long-term condition, it can have a really significant impact on you know, their current health, their long-term health, their quality of life, psychological health. So we really do need to be thinking about that and how any condition impacts that whole, whole human being. Um, when it comes to PCOS, unfortunately, we do know that there is an increased risk of certain conditions. So things like prediabetes, um, type 2 diabetes and gestational diabetes. So gestational diabetes where you then develop diabetes in pregnancy. Um, also things like cardiovascular disease. So things like strokes and heart attacks, um, sleep apnea. Um, fertility problems as we've already alluded to and that's more linked to things like the irregular periods or menstrual cycle um, and also the difficulty in maintaining a healthy body weight. 
Um, and then also there's this increased risk of kind of psychological issues, um, which I think is overlooked quite a lot with PCOS. Um, but things like there is a, an increased prevalence of things like anxiety and depression, eating disorders as well. Um, so it's really, really important that for um, this population group that we are screening for things like mood, stress, quality of life, so that we can pinpoint any issues really early on and then signpost them to any relevant, um, you know, relevant or helpful things. So whether that's referrals to mental health, um, whether it's counselling, signposting to local charities or just working with the individual to think of any tips that might be realistic to help manage stress longer term. Um, but it is really important that we are monitoring that and continuously monitoring it to pick up on any issues quite early on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's probably why I get asked so often about it, because I think either if someone is thinking they might have PCOS or they've been actually diagnosed with it, um, I think, you know, it is something that creates a lot of anxiety and people are generally quite distressed about it um, compared to like, I suppose all, you know, physical health conditions do carry that risk of anxiety and stress over it but I think something like PCOS in particular definitely seems to carry that sort of just extra level of of stress with real with the diagnosis definitely and as um, you say it, that might be because of the actual symptoms that somebody is getting that may be having a really big impact on how they're feeling um but also all of you know all of the information out there there's some out there that's you know really good information some out there that's really not so it's quite scary sometimes if somebody goes off by themselves mm -hmm. and starts researching these things um so it can be very overwhelming i think yeah and so with with that i suppose and people are very anxious first thing and we all do it even though myself as a healthcare professional i know it's the worst thing to do um is you turn to dr google <laughs> Um, so there's bound to be some, um, well, I'm sure a lot of common myths and misconceptions about PCOS. Um, what would be some common ones that maybe you either hear from clients themselves or that you've just seen online on the internet, Instagram, whatever? So there are loads and loads and loads, um, just like there are with all conditions. <laughs> but I think PCOS seems to be up there with how many there are out there. Um, and as you say, we do all go towards Dr. Google, but you put it in and there's just so much weird and wonderful information that then gets thrown back at you. It's really hard to decipher what is true and what, what isn't. And so I don't blame anyone for doing it. And actually, it's a good sign that you're interested in your health, researching your health, but it's just having a bit of a sensible hat on and thinking, where is that source coming from? And before getting overly worried about it, talking to a healthcare professional to find out what is true and what's accurate. Um, but we, we all do it. Um, some of the common ones that I come across, we've already touched on one, is that it's it's not a rare condition. You might see that coming up, that it's very rare. In fact, we know it does affect one in 10 women of a reproductive age. So it is a relatively common condition. Um, and there are lots of things we can do to try and help. The second one is that you would have cysts on your ovaries. That's one that I get here a lot. Um, you don't necessarily have cysts on your ovaries and there will be women that have cysts on their ovaries that do not have PCOS. So if you, you know, just because you have cysts on your ovaries does not mean that you have PCOS. Um, 
Another one would be that all women with PCOS are overweight. Again, not true. Um, we know that unfortunately one of the side effects of PCOS can be that there's um, more difficulty in maintaining a healthy body weight but it doesn't mean that everybody with PCOS is going to be overweight. Um, you know, just with every health condition, people come in all shapes and sizes and that will be the same. Um, and the same with symptoms as well. You know, not all women are going to get exactly the same symptoms with PCOS. So it's, as we said before, very individual. Um, and then the, the one that I come across a lot through my fertility work is that people think that if you have PCOS, you then can't fall pregnant. Um, and, and that again is not true. It, again, we know that there may be maybe more slightly more difficult for some ladies with PCOS, um, but it does not mean that you definitely can't fall pregnant. There's not a direct link there that you have PCOS and therefore you're infertile. That's that's not true. Um, and you may not have any problems at all falling pregnant. But if there are, then again, there's things that you know healthcare professionals can help with to ease that and make it easier. But I'd say they're probably the most common ones I come across. There's probably tons and tons and tons, but <laughs> that's the, they're the most common ones. Yeah, I'm sure you spend quite a bit of your time just kind of reassuring your clients when they come to you against all of these different myths that they come with. Would you find that that's one of the first things that they would bring up is something that they've <laughs> found online? I'm nodding yeah. away. Um, yeah, um, I, I think, think that's quite common. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think it's really important, again, not just with this population group but in any consultations to really hand it over to the patient straight away and say well what are your main concerns because what you think may be their main concerns or what's mm -hmm. best for them may be completely different to what they're worried about and what they really want to focus on so I think it mm -hmm. is really important to hand it over to the patient straight away find out what they're really worrying about and then work from there um, because even if you've got the you know the best plan in the world if that's not actually focusing in on what they feel is important it's never going to be put into put into practice so I think yeah asking straight away what are your main concerns and letting them get all of that out is a really important factor yeah definitely um so we've touched on this already a little bit with um how you know PCS can affect different people but I really wanted to kind of double click on the links between PCOS and weight. So we've said that this isn't something that affects everyone with PCOS but I think when difficulties with weight are involved I think even out of all the other symptoms this really is one aspect that people are very concerned with because of course unfortunately we live in a very weight obsessed culture and I also think uh, there's probably a lot of misinformation and bad advice that goes out around this as well. So what are the actual links with PCOS and weight, first of all? What is the actual reason behind this? And if someone is struggling in this way, should they inherently try and lose weight as part of their treatment? Yeah, absolutely. As you say, we, we know not everybody... Um, struggles with their weight with PCOS but yes it is unfortunately one one of the symptoms that's quite common for people um, so it is something we need to take into consideration definitely um, especially as dietitians um, so yes we know that it can be more difficult to maintain a healthy body weight and that for some individuals may be a really important thing to get help with because actually we know that if somebody is overweight that can exacerbate symptoms of PCOS so other symptoms that they may be getting um, but also being overweight can then increase something called insulin resistance. Um, and insulin resistance is basically where 
we have kind of an excess amount of insulin, which is a hormone, a growth hormone circulating in our blood. And because we have quite a lot of it, um, we become resistant to it. So similar to antibiotic resistance, if we keep having loads and loads of antibiotics, eventually we become resistant to it. Our body doesn't really want to respond to them how we should be. And it's the same with insulin. If we've got lots of insulin there, our body becomes a bit despondent to it. It doesn't use it how it should be using it. And they just remain at a high level in our blood. And the problems with that is if we have more insulin in our blood, is that that in turn can also exacerbate PCOS symptoms um, because higher insulin can lead to higher testosterone levels. So that male hormone we mentioned earlier. Um, but also if we've got insulin resistance, it can also be much more difficult to lose weight and much easier to gain weight um, because insulin is a fat storage hormone. So if we've got lots of it circulating in our, in our blood at once, our body wants to put on weight with it. Um, so it's a bit of a vicious circle, really, that, you know, it's, it's hard to get out of. Um, and we know that about 50 to 80 percent of women with PCOS have some level of insulin resistance. So it's a really important thing that we need to be thinking about to try and then help with specific dietary advice, specific lifestyle advice that we know helps to reduce insulin levels or improve insulin sensitivity to then help with weight loss as well. Um, and the guidance in kind of national guidelines is alluding to the fact that, yes, we should be helping women that are struggling with their weight to lose weight if they want to. Um, but how we do that is quite vague in the guidance. So it says that we should be supporting women to get to a healthy BMI, um, to do have gradual weight loss, so sensible amounts of about half a pound to two pounds a week. Um, and it basically just says to do it through a healthy, balanced diet with about a 500 calorie deficit per day, but it doesn't really home in on well, what actual types of diets may be more beneficial for this population group? Um, you know, there is research behind that and studies to help with us, but in the actual guidance, it is quite wishy-washy as to what exactly we should be advising. Um, but yes, it is, you know, it, being overweight is something we need to think about and actually it can really help to improve symptoms and therefore quality of life as well if we if we um, help help support these women with that. Yeah, and as you've said, I think that's why it's so important we do have dietitians to kind of support them in that because I know that obviously GPs are very busy. Um, they don't have the time to sit down with every single patient that they get through their doors and go through, you know, the whole treatment plan. This goes for any condition. So as a result, sometimes they'll, they're probably just told lose weight <laughs> and they're not really given any support as to how to do that um, and I think for a lot of people especially when you are struggling to lose weight it becomes a bit of a um, a downward spiral in terms of just becoming maybe or having the potential just to become more and more restrictive in your diet without really understanding what's going to work what's not and what's the kind of maybe potentially negative outcomes of very restrictive diets and um, so I think having the support of a dietitian especially if you are trying to lose weight and do so healthily in these type of settings is so so important. Because of this reduced insulin sensitivity um, I'm sure diets such as low carb, keto, intermittent fasting um, would be quite maybe common diets or proposed mechanisms that someone might use to try and kind of battle this especially if they are going online looking at google 
are any of these actually recommended for women struggling with PCOS? Is there any evidence of these that they're helpful? And if someone was to undertake one of these types of approaches, what would be some common pitfalls or dangers that they might need to be aware of? Yeah. Um, so with low carb ketogenic, I mean, it's very on trend, I say with air quotations, um, it's kind of all out there in the internet, social media, it's, you know, the first thing that people will probably come across if they do go to Dr. Google. Um, and like we said before, it's not in the actual guidance for PCOS, so it's not been put into kind of national guidelines at this moment in time. Um, and we really do need to first of all just think, well, what is appropriate for that individual? So even if we do think it might be helpful, is it realistic or appropriate? Is it going to you know, benefit them longer term? Can they continue with that longer term? Um, but they're saying that there are some smaller studies around low carb ketogenic approaches and PCOS management. And some of those studies have shown it to be helpful. Um, so it can improve things like insulin sensitivity, um, which can then help with weight loss um, and reduce the risk of things like prediabetes and type 2 diabetes. Um, it's also been shown or they've also been shown to reduce things like testosterone levels as well. Um, so that will then help with the symptoms associated with PCOS. Um, but these studies, it is worth bearing in mind that they're, the ones that I've seen are a reasonably small um, participant group. Um, and also it's only really reviewing what happens with their weight loss reasonably short term. It doesn't necessarily follow up or has that been maintained after 5, 10, 15 years. So there is a little body of evidence to say it may be helpful, um, but we don't know longer term if it's maintainable for, for anyone or this population group. Um, personally, what I would suggest is that Women with PCOS do not need to go onto a ketogenic diet. I think that is in incredibly restrictive for them and actually in turn can have knock-on effects which make it, make it more difficult as well. So for example, it cuts out an entire food group and therefore an entire group of nutrients that you need to be healthy. Um, and especially if somebody is thinking about conception or falling pregnant, then actually that's going to be really important to get all of those nutrients to help with that fertility. Um, but also another really important thing we need to think of for this patient group is that we know if women with PCOS become constipated, then that can increase their estrogen levels, which then increases testosterone levels as well. Um, so actually we need to really be focusing on making sure women are having regular bowel movements um, and not restricting things like fibre, which you know the ketogenic diet really would do. Um, so personally, wouldn't be recommending the ketogenic diet, especially if as well, if there's any kind of history of restricted eating or eating disorders, I think it's then not a sensible idea to put someone on an overly restrictive diet and thinking about what we need to cut out. We should really be thinking about, well, what should you be adding into your diet? What should you be eating to help? Um, so I don't think the ketogenic diet, although there's bodies of evidence, is necessarily the best diet to follow. Um, but possibly following a, a more moderate or lower carbohydrate diet may be of benefit, especially if an individual is quite keen to do that. Um, but initially focusing in on reducing carbohydrates from more processed foods and sugary drinks rather than cutting out really healthy, wholesome foods. Um, and also with that, I guess, there's also evidence to say that a lower GI or a lower glycemic index diet can be helpful for PCOS management too. 
So it might be that you have more a moderate carb approach, but choosing lower GI foods. So things like oats and whole grains, fruits and vegetables, beans and pulses, nuts and seeds, focusing on those kinds of foods on a moderate carbohydrate approach may be really, really helpful for someone. Um, but I very, very rarely ever recommend an overly restrictive diet that would only be in very specific medical conditions. Um, so I think ketogenic can probably go on the back burner a bit. Um, the, the other um, diet as well that has been shown to be really helpful with PCOS um, because of things like weight management and reducing insulin levels, reducing testosterone, reducing inflammation um, can be the Mediterranean approach. Um, so that's a more well-balanced approach. It's not necessarily overly restricting any food group. Um, it's just really focusing on wholesome, natural foods. And again, things like whole grains, fruit and veg, beans and pulses, nuts and seeds, oily fish, um, olive oil, and a, a lower or moderate intake of things like meat and dairy. Um, but that as well may be a really good diet to to you know explore if somebody especially isn't very keen on a low carb approach then a mediterranean approach may be helpful for them as well yeah i think you kind of brought up a good point as well about the ketogenic diet because i think it's really tempting um whenever you see a certain diet especially something that's quite extreme like the keto diet if it does have maybe a potential positive impact on pcos but i think what people need to keep in mind is you potentially can improve one health condition but how is that going to affect your overall health so maybe it might improve your PCOS but how is it going to affect the rest of your health and I know with keto for example you're really restricting that fiber like you've said and that has such a knock-on effect on your digestive health your heart health so many different areas as well as just you know it's a very restrictive diet what is that doing to your relationship with food, um, your quality of life, all of those sorts of things. So it's kind of like, what's yeah, the point? No, exactly that. <laughs> what is the point in doing it if it's going to have a knock-on effect? Um, and, and it's not just if people have histories of restrictive eating, you know, it just through really restrictive diets, that is going more towards kind of a yo-yo approach with our eating. We know that can have quite a big impact on things like our metabolic rate. So yes, we may drop loads of weight initially, but then actually we're likely to put that weight on really quickly and potentially get to a higher weight than where we were before we started on that diet. And from a psychological impact, that can be really demotivating for people if they've tried really, really hard, lost that weight, and then they put it on really quickly. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's much more beneficial to do it in a, a more moderate, healthy approach and finding a diet that somebody actually enjoys. It shouldn't be punishment to eat these foods. It should be a diet that they actually want to continue mm -hmm. with longer term. Definitely. Um, and so you've kind of already given a little bit of what sorts of dietary advice um, you might give, but I suppose if you were to line out maybe in a few points, what would be the main pieces of dietary advice that you ideally would give to someone who's struggling with PCOS or if someone's listening, where would be some good places to start with their diet? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think fiber is a really important one. So trying to focus on getting some really wholesome natural sources of fiber. So as we've said, using things like whole grains and oats and fruits and vegetables, beans and pulses, things like that. 
Um, that is really, really important. And the flip side of that is trying to reduce their intake of more processed or, or ultra processed foods. Um, so just having a more natural approach to their diet and whether that's through more a moderate carb approach or Mediterranean, both have been shown to be very helpful. Um, all the research in, you know, in the past has more been looking at particular dietary approaches and, and things like looking at carbs and macronutrients, but there is starting to be a little bit of evidence or small bodies of evidence around supplementation as well. Um, so there is some evidence to say that women with PCOS are um, more common to have vitamin D deficiencies in comparison to women without PCOS. Um, and low blood levels of vitamin D, again, have been shown to then make symptoms associated with PCOS worse. So that is something I also discuss with my clients. You know, are you on any kind of vitamin D supplementation? How much do you get outside? You know, what's the sunscreen that you're using? All these different things. Um, and we know that in the UK, because our sunlight is so poor and, and you can't really get vitamin D from your foods and drinks, or at least not in enough quantities to meet your requirements, um, you do now need to have a 10 microgram per day vitamin D supplement in the autumn and winter months. Um, but to be honest, if, if there's a patient in front of you that's quite high risk, you could potentially be advising that all year round as well. So 10 micrograms per day, but all, all year round. Um, and then monitoring those levels. If we know we've got a patient in front of us that is at high risk, then they should maybe have blood tests every now and again just to check that their levels are okay. Um, and then the other supplement that there's research around linking in with PCOS is omega-3. Um, so omega-3 supplements have been shown in PCOS to help with regulating menstrual cycles, again, helping with reducing testosterone as well, so helping with the symptom management. Um, and there's not really yet enough evidence to say that dietary omega-3 does the same, but I would be encouraging that. So I would be encouraging, you know, getting two portions of fish per week, one of which being an oily variety to make sure that omega-3 is there. Um, and if that's really not possible for someone, if they don't eat fish or just really don't like it, um, thinking about then a, a, an appropriate supplementation, um, whether that's a standard one or whether that's a vegan one, if that's needed as well. Um, so yeah, I think just a really wholesome natural diet, really focusing on fiber, focusing on reducing processed foods, and then also the side of that, things like vitamin D, omega-3 can be really helpful. Perfect. So when you think about it, really, it's quite simple and straightforward in that it's not some weird, different diet that overtakes your whole life. It's just being sensible, I think, and trying to focus on high quality foods, reducing, as you said, those ultra processed foods, because again, going back to the whole low carb um, stuff, such a difference between consuming a load of sugar-filled drinks and snacks all day um, and the inclusion of high-fibre whole grain carbs. And sometimes we can almost package these things um, together, but so totally different in terms of how they impact health. Um, and then I suppose, is there any difference between the dietary advice you'd give to someone who is struggling with PCOS but is maybe not currently trying to start a family and then with someone who is actively trying to conceive? Is there any differences in the advice that you would give? Yeah, so in general, I mean, if we go real back to basics, 
both the dietary advice with preconception and the dietary advice with PCOS is largely going to be looking at what is a healthy balanced diet, not being overly restrictive, not cutting out whole food groups and making sure it's really wholesome and natural. Um, the two types of diet which actually can be really helpful for preconception and fertility are actually a moderate carb diet, but also focusing on the fibersome sources and lower glycemic index or GI sources. Um, and then the second dietary approach that's been shown to be really helpful with fertility is the Mediterranean approach. So actually the two that are really helpful for PCOS are the two that are really helpful for fertility. Um, I guess when it comes to fertility, there's probably just a few extra things that you really would be homing in on. So for example, what is that individual's alcohol intake, but both, you know, both parties. So what's the, the partners in alcohol intake like as well? Um, because we know heavy drinking especially can have quite a big impact on the chances of falling pregnant. So I think it's that heavy drinkers are 23% less likely to fall pregnant and mm. even lighter drinkers are 11% less likely. So it is, you know, especially in that window when you're really trying to get pregnant, trying to reduce your alcohol intake as much as possible. Um, things like caffeine as well when we're thinking of fertility. So um, trying to have less than 200 milligrams of caffeine a day, um, which looks like kind of roughly four cups of tea or two cups of coffee, roughly. Um, we've said about vitamin D already. Vitamin D supplementation is really important for conception, but so is folic acid supplementation as well. Um, and it's getting guidance from your GP about exactly what dose you should be on because it's slightly different for some individuals. Um, the other things as well that are more specific to fertility can be we know that increasing your intake of plant-based protein has really been shown to improve um, fertility. So increasing things like beans and pulses, nuts and seeds um, and using less meat, especially processed meats. Um, and then just really specific nutrients or antioxidants. So the kind of things I'd be looking at to see if my clients are getting enough of are things like folate, selenium, iodine, um, coenzyme Q10 as well. There's, you know, lots of specific things that if you're having a nice, healthy, balanced diet, you're probably getting all of these things you need. Um, but they're the kind of main ones we'd home in on to see, make sure that people are really getting those. And if not, giving examples of foods that can be helpful for that. Great. Um, that's really useful. You know, it's not, as I said, something that I get to work a lot with in my NHS job. Um, but always good to know those types of things I suppose for potentially the future for myself as well but um yeah for anyone who's listening um who is trying to conceive obviously massive area of stress um on people and I think that's really interesting about the alcohol as well because especially if you are trying to conceive and you're struggling with that the 20 what was it 23 percent 25 percent reduction if you're a heavy drinker that's really massive whenever you're kind of trying to increase your chances as much as you can and um, so that's really helpful thank you it's really important as well I stressed it a little bit before but it is really important when we're thinking of fertility that it really is you know both sides of the the party so both men mm. and women really need to be thinking about these changes it doesn't just fall all onto the women um, and roughly kind of a uh, hundred days roughly before you know you want to conceive is when that's the window to make these changes that's when it's going to have the most impact so you know please don't worry about things that you've done in the past you know we need to focus on what is now what can be helpful not worrying about anything that's already you know we have no control over 
Um, but for both men and women, focusing on it for roughly kind of 90 to 100 days before they fall pregnant, if it's that planned, can be really, really helpful. Um, so yeah, it, but it's just bearing in mind that when it comes to fertility, it is both men and women that need to be thinking <laughs> about these things. Yeah, definitely. I think, like you said, often just falls all on the woman, but both men and women can make dietary changes, lifestyle changes to increase their chances as best as possible. And so finally, apart from diet, what are some more other lifestyle factors that someone with PCOS um, can practically do to implement into their lives that can just help with their symptoms and quality of life as much as possible? Yeah, so again, there's probably quite a long list of things really, and it, it will depend on who is in front of you and what's their you know, main concerns, as we said before. Um, the first one that I would always ask about is physical activity. So how active is that individual on a day-to-day basis? Are they you know, desk, do they have a desk job? Are they up on their feet a lot? Do they do any structured exercise? Um, because we know, you know, being active can help with things like weight management, but it can also help with insulin resistance. So improving that sensitivity to insulin. Um, so it's really important that we do try and increase activity if that's relevant. Um, we're aiming for roughly kind of five lots of 30 minutes a week of exercise, but really just focus on what your starting point is and, and increase that as it's realistic don't aim for the high end of it straight away Um, and it's really important to do a mixture of both aerobic or cardiovascular exercise so things like walking jogging cycling swimming and also doing some resistance exercises as well so resistance exercises are things like um, using small hand weights resistance bands or just using our own body weight so things like sit-ups and push-ups squats lunges things like that Um, and that's specifically really helpful because resistance exercises have been shown to improve insulin sensitivity so that there's that link there between those Um, so yeah promoting exercise in a healthy you know a healthy relationship with exercise as well the only thing we really want to avoid in that in that scenario is any excessive exercise so not encouraging people to do really high intensive exercise for really long periods of time really frequently um, because actually that in itself creates a bit of a stress response in the body and that then can increase our insulin levels so a sensible amount of exercise regularly including both aerobic and resistance but not being overly obsessive or, or excessive with it um, so that's probably the first one. The second one is sleep quality. Um, so not always the easiest thing to overcome, um, especially if we're in a long-term habit with our sleep, with maybe going to bed a bit late or having quite an irregular pattern with our sleep behaviours. Um, but sleep as well has a big impact on things like our weight and insulin resistance. So it may be talking through particular behaviours with that individual. So do they have a regular sleeping pattern? Um, Do they use screens before bed? Do they have a a really heavy meal or alcohol or smoking just before going to bed? Um, Things like keeping well hydrated throughout the day, uh, sleeping in a a dark, cool room. So making sure there's some fresh air or ventilation um, and also wearing kind of loose fitting clothing as well. Nothing too tight or restrictive. And also with sleep quality, something that a lot of people don't want to hear, but um, pets. So trying to avoid having pets in the bed um, can be really disruptive to our sleep quality. So I'm sorry if you really like having the cat or dog in the bed with you, but that can, you know, that can make a big difference too. 
Um, and then another one, you know, as we said, there's loads, but another one might be um, BPA exposure. So BPA is a chemical that we find in some plastics. It's not in all plastics, but some plastics. Um, and it's been shown that high levels of BPA or high exposure to BPA can increase those androgen hormones. So things like testosterone um, and also it has been linked to poorer fertility outcomes as well. Um, so by no means does this mean don't touch plastic because it would be completely impossible. Um, but using things like BPA free Tupperware or glass Tupperware, um, trying to um, buy more fruits and vegetables or food at the supermarket that aren't wrapped in plastic or if you need to, because that's all that's available or all that's affordable, then buying that, taking it home, removing the plastic and popping it in your glass Tupperware, for example. Um, limiting things like plastic water bottles, plastic coffee cups, things like that. Just day-to-day -day little changes um, can have quite a big impact on, on our exposure to BPA, which can then in turn help with PCOS and fertility. Great, that's all super useful. And I think for anyone who is struggling with PCOS, as I've said, I get so many questions, but I think that will really give people a good starting point and hopefully give them a lot of peace of, peace of mind as well, that there are a lot of changes that they can make to at least get started. And I suppose it depends how much it's impacting them as an individual, everyone's so different, but if it is something that they're really struggling with, it gives them something to start with and then hopefully if they need the extra support um, I suppose I would just encourage them to go and seek out if there's any dietitians in their area whether it is under the NHS or whether it's something that they can afford to pay privately for I think it's definitely worthwhile um, but those are all great useful tips that you've given um, very easy to integrate into people's lives as well um, if they can't afford to go and see a dietitian or it's just not available yeah and it's um you know like you said Katie it's just picking one thing at a time I think it can feel quite overwhelming sometimes if we try and do everything at once so just pick out what is most relevant for you start with that try and integrate that as a habit and then move on to the next thing don't try and change everything all at once um, and the BDA or the British Dietetic Association also do have a free resource on PCOS so you can get that through the internet as well if that's again a good starting point or just a nice summary from what we've been talking about. Yeah and I think as well what's great about a lot I know there's some some specific um, pieces of advice that maybe would be more important in PCOS than in in other individuals but for the most part they're all changes that are going to benefit not just our PCOS but pretty much every area of health um, and I think that's what's great about so much of this advice it's not kind of trying to manage your heart health and trying to manage your fertility and trying to manage this and that doing all of these changes is going to have a positive impact on so many areas of your health so um, I suppose knowing that as well it helps to bring it all together <laughs> So thank you so, so much for coming on today. I've definitely learned a lot um, and I hope it was helpful. I'm sure it will have been for anyone who's listening with PCOS. So thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been lovely to have a chat. So that is it for today's episode. As I've said, I really do hope that this was useful for anyone who wants to know a little bit more about what they can actively do to help to treat the symptoms of PCOS and just maximize their health as much as possible. 
as Alex and I mentioned, it's really not about um, segmenting all the different parts of your health and having a different diet for every different aspect. It's really all about treating your whole body health and not getting caught up in any um, specific or restrictive diets that are going to potentially treat one condition but worsen your health overall. Make sure to check out Alex on Instagram. Her Instagram handle is at alextalksdiet or you can find me on Instagram at kittywilsonrd. If you don't already know, I do also have a blog, saltandhoney.co.uk. This is where I post recipes, informational posts, so make sure to take a look on there as well. If you enjoyed today's episode and you have the time, I would really appreciate it if you would leave me a review. It really helps to get my podcast out there and I would really, really appreciate it. With all that being said, I hope you all have a fantastic week and I will speak to you in the next episode.